culture vultures and the carcasses they feed on. We are Tam and Mel, and this is me, myself, I, and you. All right. Um, so thank you guys for joining us. Um, this is our wonderful episode on culture vultures and how much damage they actually do. Um, we have three guests today. We have Nick, Eric, and Renee, and they're going to talk through um, some of their experiences, some of their opinions. So let's just get right into it. I'm going to start with Renee. Renee, what's the difference between cultural appreciation and cultural appropriation to you? So I feel that cultural Cultural appreciation is when, this is the exact words that it says, when you actually appreciate um, a culture that isn't of your own, um, that could be as small as appreciating the food from a certain culture or appreciating um, the way a certain culture dresses, but then that's where it gets tricky when it can kind of go into cultural appropriation. Um, let's say, for instance, if you were <clears throat> to wear a traditional garb from a uh, Asian culture, um, not really understanding um, the meaning behind it, but you're wearing it as a fashion and not for what it's for and, and thinking that it's okay to do it, um, you're not necessarily appreciating the culture because you're kind of going against what it stands for. Um, also another example, I feel, uh, cultural appropriation is when you take from another culture and claim it as your own. And that's the biggest one. Yes. Um, and an example of that is when white women wear Bantu knots and then call them space buns. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that's yeah. my take on that. <laughs> okay. Um, Nick, what about you? Sure. And so um, this is a question I get asked a lot, especially from uh, the students I work with. And um, really the best example I like to direct them towards is the film Nightmare Before Christmas. And really ask them, okay, so, you know, sit down and watch this film and take a look at, wh at what point the main character, Jack Skellington, goes from being really in love and enamored with Christmas to actually believing he can do it better than uh, Santa Claus or all the other Christmas uh, Christmas night residents themselves, right? And think about you know his, his uh, support network. Think about the ca uh, the character Sally, right? Warning him, hey, you know maybe you need to slow your roll a little bit. This is something that's new to you, right? And sort of his drive to really take ownership of of, of Christmas, right? Even though that's something that he just literally learned about uh, forty eight hours prior. And so uh, for me, that film is a really good starting point for a lot of my students in part because it gets them thinking of sort of outside the box, right? Outside of sort of yeah. the, in some ways, the racial box, right? Thinking about this as, as cultural traditions or cultural practices that have real meaning for the communities that created them. What does it mean to claim those for your own and completely strip them of any sort of value or, or sort of, um, you know, uh, ethical content that the communities that created them uh, imbued them with. And so for me, you know, that, that line uh, between appreciation and appropriation, you know, it has to do with power. It has to do with uh, profit in some ways, right? And so, uh, you know, there, there are clear 
uh, yeses and noes, right? There's clear forms of, uh, of appreciation and, and very gross forms of appropriation. And there's all these little uh, gray areas in the middle, right? Uh, and so sometimes it you know, really takes uh, a little bit of work on our parts as people that appreciate different cultures to really hold ourselves accountable. Yeah. Yeah, Eric, that was a really great analogy. Eric, what about you? Mm -hmm. I think that for me, it's all on the spectrum. There is a lot of nuance mm -hmm. in, in the appropriation versus appreciation. Um, I think that intention has a lot to do with it. And uh, whether your intention um, is uh, meaningful, or if it is uh, just doing something to, to be a part of a trend. I, I think that is very important. It's the uh, having a educated approach to your appreciation, I think is very important. Yeah, and I think, I, I know I always try to tend to, I tend to look at, you know, I'm not as easily offended by food as I am by hair right? Like, I think we all have our triggers. Like, if you make shitty tacos, like, you just have to eat shitty tacos. I know where to get good tacos. But like, if you put braids in your hair, do you know why you put braids in your hair? Do you know what region of Africa that comes from? Do you understand why Black women put braids in their hair, right? Like, so that's a deeper, deeper, deeper thing. So how do you think that you gauge intent, Eric? Like, how do you, how do you, how do you gauge that intent? How do you know if somebody is coming from a good place? Certainly. So I think for me, um, a girl on spring break going to Mexico, getting her hair braided, because that's what you do when you're on vacation in Mexico, I think made to me as a white man is less offensive. Um, than somebody like Adele going out in Bantu Knots to the Afro-Korean festival. Uh, because I think it was a, a moment to celebrate some Muslim culture and not take it. I think mm -hmm. that to me, I think the, the intent there was to celebrate, but it felt much more like she was taking. Yeah, and I mean, I saw that picture too, and I kind of was like, I didn't think twice about it because it was Adele. So that, that this goes back to kind of this intent, right? Like, so if you, and also the knowledge you have of a human being and what they speak about in their everyday lives. We know that Adele has always been an activist for black and brown communities. We know that she sits in the culture and as far as the sound and the music and she represents it well and people of color respect her for that. So it's, um, you look at that and you don't, it breezes right over you. Renee, what do you think? Um, I like that you touched on like actually knowing what a person is about kind of mm -hmm. helps you understand whether or not the intention is good. <laughs> um, like for instance, when Kim Kardashian puts cornrows in her hair and then what did she call them? Um, Monster braids. Yes, boxer thank you, braids? boxer braids. Yes, because women who are boxers, they cornroll their hair to keep it out the way. <laughs> and, you know, and that's when you kind of want to be like, cut the shit. Like, that's not even a yeah. thing. Like, it's just, yeah. That's good. Yeah. And then what makes it worse is when um, moments like that horrible, horrible thing that happened when Zendaya 
she wore faux locks and -hmm. then she was called um different names um she would say that she probably smells like patchouli and different oils Mm -hmm. like basically kind of like uh associating locks with jamaican people and then Kylie Jenner turns around, she wears faux locks, and then she's phrased, oh my God, this new innovative look. And what was the difference between a black woman and a white woman wearing the same exact hairstyle? Which, by the way, is a hairstyle that comes from black culture. So, um, and then the fact that Kylie didn't even come back and say, hey, don't say that I you know, am an innovator when you start here and you put Zendaya down for having the same hairstyle. That that was a moment for Kylie to sh- for Kylie to show us that that her intentions were good. And because that she because she didn't, then we know where she stood. She was appropriating and not appreciating. Well, yeah, and I mean this this is a you kind of touched on something interesting to me, and I, I want to kind of see what Nick has to say about this too. Is that like in general, like for me growing up as a black woman, I grew up in a pretty, I mean, diverse, Nick and Tamla grew up in the same place, in, in a very diverse place. Lots of different kinds of people come from lots of different kinds of places. Um, it wasn't cool to have a fat ass until Kim Kardashian had a fat ass. You know what I mean? And then it's like, now that's cool. Now there's a surgery for that. Now there's, you know, people literally like sit in a tube and like brown themselves. Like when I was sitting, you know, in the growing up in central California trying to get blonder and to get thinner and to get, you know, all of these different things because I was shown the opposite of my culture all the time, or I was shown that it wasn't normal. And now that women aspire to look like that. And it's just, I don't know. It's fascinating to me, Nick, what do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, there, there's, um, there's some intersecting uh, hierarchies of privilege, privilege there, right? I mean, you've got on one hand sort of white privilege, whereas um, sort of cultural garb or cultural ways to adorn your hair, adorn your body, right? When they're uh, affected by a black body, brown body, uh, Asian body, you know, what have you, right? Those bodies are judged, right? Uh, but when a white person does it, right? Oh, they're being innovative. They're being inventive. They're being creative, right? Um, you know, a good example of that, I, I love her as an artist. I've been following her for a long, long time, but sometimes we got to hold our, 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 our idols, uh, their, their feet to the fire. Gwen Stefani, Gwen Stefani, someone who's super oh. talented, amazing performer, but oh my Lord. she's always pulling from the culture and style and fashion and looks of communities of color, right? Even when she came out in, you know, back in the nineties with, uh, no doubt she had the, uh, the Indian bindi, right? The bindi, and then she tried to do yeah. sort of the, the chola thing. And then she tried to do the Harajuku thing, right? So every step along the way, she, you know, is able to, right, be praised for um, taking elements of, of other people's culture. It, it could be out of, right? It could be out of appreciation. But yeah. then she's able, right, to profit off of that, make that a part of her image. And you see no payback, right? You, need so, you see no sort of payback to these communities from which she, she takes. The Kardashian thing, that's a tricky thing also, right? Because if you take mm-hmm. the money away, those are three Armenian girls in the middle of Glendale, right? <laughs> uh, and so they're, 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 their thing is tricky, right? Because in some ways, um, money lightens, right? In some mm-hmm. ways, we, we think about them more as, as, uh, as white in some context, right? But, uh, you know, you, you, you take the, the wealth away, right? And you see them on the street, they look like three uh, Arabic girls or three Latinas, 
Um, mm -hmm. And and so you know, the, the, for me, the the appropriation thing and the the privilege thing, right? There there is white privilege there, but also I would say you know there's a little bit aspect of uh, maybe some classism there too. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny that we talk about credit. Um, is it enough to give credit? So let's just say you've crossed that line. What does that look like? So as somebody who's frequently on TikTok, this is a common, 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 it's commonplace on TikTok. Somebody does a dance, a black creator does a dance, a white creator does a dance, and the white creator gets a million dollars, right? And that's, I mean, that's not fully accurate, but you get the idea. And then there's no credit given to the person that they kind of took this from and, and, and moved through the TikTok universe with and made cash on and views and all of these wonderful things. So is credit enough? Like if you are inspired, if fashion is inspired, if, if music, dance, if any of those things are inspired by said cultural group and you nab it, is there a good way to make it right? Eric? So when it comes to the Gwen Stefani piece, I think when I was growing up, um, I did not have access to um, Indian culture. I, I didn't see bindis. I, I, didn't, um, I, I didn't see the, um, the ink tattoos and whatnot. And so when I saw her, I got more interested and I learned more about it. Same with her Harajuku girl. I had never heard of them before. And then became super into it. And when I went to Tokyo, I sought them out to, to see that culture. So I do think that there is some uh, value in a broad exposure without, ex without ex exploitation. Um, mm -hmm. and, I, and I don't know with, with Zafani what that line is. Um, I, I'm not being, um, it's, my culture isn't being exposed or exploited by her. So mm -hmm. I can't speak to that experience, but I did learn more from her. Yeah, you know, I had this, I used to have this conversation all the time about hip hop, right? It's like you know the difference between listening to Will Smith and listening to Biggie, right? And then people hate on Will Smith because it's watered down, blah, 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 you know, all this stuff. But it's like, without Will Smith, you might not get a gateway to Biggie. Like there's these kind of gateway drugs in culture, right? If you look at just even different like fashion and it's like, then you have to ask yourself, it's just a deep, deep well. You have to ask yourself this question to Eric's point. Well, had I not known this was there, would I know that this and this and this and this was there? Would I have a greater understanding for the culture? Maybe that Will Smith album took me to a Biggie album then took me to an NWA album. And then I learned a little bit more about a society that I knew nothing about, right? And so it kind of begs the question, is it okay? Renee? I feel like it's okay when value comes from it. Mm -hmm. Like the explanation that Eric gave um, when listening to Gwen Stefani and seeing her with all these different culture, cultures around her and going to seek out the information like, oh, what is she wearing? Let me go see. Now I know something about a different culture that I never knew before. So 
he gained some value from her I don't want to say appropriating because I'm not sure if that's what she was doing or not, but I will say that um, value came from it. And so I feel like as long as the culture isn't being exploited or isn't um, being stolen, <laughs> all just right out stolen yeah. um, and some value comes from it, then yeah, it's okay because you know sometimes I like to throw on a kimono. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, and so when we talk about value and we talk about theft, and then I think we need to talk about respect as well. So I think yeah. my issue with Gwen Stefani in in regard to Harajuku girls in gen like specifically is they were always kind of seen with her as this entourage and they were almost like dolls on a leash, um, which that was the thing that was, that was always kind of strange to me. And, you know, it's, there's also that vibe, like that Kauai vibe that's definitely there and that energy is there. But I feel like in that specific instance, it was just a little bit, you know, and they would just, you know, have names and they would like you know it was just a weird it was just to me it was just very strange they were more of like this entourage doll situation around them but again same as Eric I knew nothing about that culture I knew nothing about that fashion I knew nothing and I learned a lot and same as Eric when I went to Tokyo I was like this is so cool well, you know what I mean like this is so cool this is the thing that I thought about when I was you know 19 18 19 whatever, however old I was, I'm not going to say how old I am, but, you know. With that, Melanie, you know, when you're there in, in Tokyo, the mm -hmm. Harajuku girls in that culture is all about exposure, and it's all A about thousand percent. and yeah. being amplified. So that Gutsapani Harajuku girl is a confusing gray mm -hmm. area. You know, was it um, appreciation or was it appropriation? I, I think that the intention seemed to be a celebration of that culture. Yeah. Um, I think that, I think you're right. I think that there are other instances where that was blatantly a misstep. <laughs> Nick, what do you have anything more to kind of say about that? Uh, that's the story of American popular culture for the last 120 years, right? Yeah. You have these you have these innovators of color, whether you know for the most part in American culture, right? It's mostly African Americans, but as we see other communities um, becoming much more prominent, right? Um, Asian American, or well, not even Asian American, right? Um, Asian international. But you you sort of see right this innovation. Um, appreciation that then turns to appropriation right our our company it it you know we got to keep the economy going right and so if there's something that you're good at or you think looks nice we got to sell it right and so uh, on down through our our popular forms of music on down through our popular forms of style um other forms of entertainment right you see cultural appropriation all the way through and that's what makes this conversation so tricky is that you know if it wasn't for these different facets of popular culture us as normal everyday people in many ways wouldn't have encountered, right, form, the forms of difference that we really love and appreciate and that we know of, right? Yeah. You know, to a degree, we all appropriate, right? Uh, to a degree, you know, uh, we all adopt 
different um, aspects of other people's cultures that, that we like, right? And, you know, we mentioned previously the, the cuisine thing, right? Uh, who am I to tell people, oh, you can't eat sushi, you can't eat kimchi, you can't eat tacos, so on and so forth, right? That, that's, not, that's not the point, right? Uh, it, it's much more about really being more mindful, right? And acknowledging and being willing to, to, to be educated and to have the desire to, right, know, to know more about these cultural practices or cultural uh, whatevers. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that goes back to the intent, right? You know, um, uh, it, you know it's, it's really hard to judge intent sometimes, but I think for ourselves and speaking on our own behalf, you know, are we willing to go that extra step? Yeah, yeah. So I just wanna kind of jump on that and talk through, you know, we talk about Gwen Stefani, which is very much rooted in music. Um, I want to talk a little bit about film and TV. And Eric, you were on our episode and did a great job on that on that episode talking about the depiction of people in film and television. Um, but we wanted to touch on some things of how do we get to a place where there's language being said in certain communities that have now made their way up into the suburbs, and how do we how do we reconcile that? Is that okay? Um, because so many of these things come from the expressions of people of color, people in the LGBTQ plus community. And I struggle with it sometimes. Like, you know, when someone says, hey girl, that shit pisses me off. <laughs> and so I, you know, I want to kind of touch on that. And I, I want to start with you, Eric. Certainly. I think there is a balance to be found when a underrepresented community find its way into the lexicon of the larger public. Um, when we talk about the Black trans community um, who created the Vogue um, dance movement in the 80s, what, and it was then stolen by Madonna and, and made into a really cheesy dance, uh, I, I think that there, even through that appropriation, there was an underlying appreciation for the original voguers um, who have lived on, you know, through, through, lived through and lived past the Madonna exposure. Um, and even 30 years later, we're seeing a return to celebrate those original dancers. And that Vogue movement, the, the ball culture, has influenced so much of our popular culture um, through um, drag queens, through, um, uh, Black women on Housewives, to the white women who watched the Housewives. You know, I think that there is a, a continuation of, of that culture. But I think people return to its root. People want to know more about um, Black trans women. They want to know more about um, the ball culture. And we're now celebrating that in 2020 with a, with a series on FX. So we have to make sure that with every, with every elevation of a unrepresented community that we return and celebrate the, the roots. That's correct. Yeah. And I think there's something to be said for that. I know that, um, and I think also like, it depends on who you are as a person. Some people don't take that time. You're a very thoughtful individual. You take that time. I get, you know, a whiff of something that I think is cool and then I dive into the rabbit hole. Yes, I watched the whole documentary on all of Madonna's dancers and where they are now and where their lives have been. And I cried for about <laughs> 20 minutes. 
Um, you know, I watch Pose on FX, and if anybody hasn't watched it, you should, because I think it's one of the most important series on television, and it'll teach you fucking lot. And um, I think if you take that time to dedicate, or what Tamla and I call get to the root <laughs> of what it is, then I think you're doing yourself a service, and to Renee's point earlier, you know, your intent is good if, it, if something valuable comes from it. Renee, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so. <laughs> so you have plenty. Go ahead. <laughs> um, so, okay. Social media is the reason for, is the answer to your question. <laughs> it is because of social media. Um, everything just comes to you faster than it would before social media. And so um, there's right now this huge fight that's happening, um, mostly on Twitter, where there is a group of young individuals of multiple ethnicities, um, but mostly non-black or non-brown people. And they um, use what we call AAVE, which is African-American Vernacular English. And that includes all the different terms that come from people of color and people in the LGBTQ plus community. Um, but, the black part of the LGBTQ plus community. And so the fight is we're using AAVE on this side, but then the people who are using it um, wrong or inappropriately are calling it stand culture language. And, <laughs> yeah. And so stand culture, like when you see Beyonce come on stage, you go, yes, B, like that, they're calling it stand culture because they stand for that artist or they stand for this TV show or they stand for something. And the language that um, usually goes with um, expressing how much you love that person comes from AAVE. And it kind of goes a little deeper because then you're like, okay, but some of those phrases come from the LGBTQ community. But when you really think about it, a lot of the stuff that they say come from the black aunties and aunties and old grandmas and it's like like language from years before any of us were even thought of. And so it's like all it's all comes back to being rooted in black culture and black community. I so, will say yeah. I am very guilty of that myself. Um because I found one time that um, black women that I loved, um, when they were complimenting someone, would just call out the one attribute that they were that they were complimenting, like <laughs> yes, polka dots, you know, mm -hmm. and not any other context, just the polka dots. And mm -hmm. I thought that was the most brilliant thing because I honestly didn't want to formulate an entire sentence, just call out the one thing I love. And so I, I have incorporated that into my vernacular. And I, I think you're right, Renee. It is a part of the AVE. AAVE. AAVE. Um, so many acronyms to keep straight with. Look us. at you guys. Everyone's just sitting here growing, growing and learning, growing and learning. I love it. Yeah. So I, I, I see that myself. And I, I, I wonder um, when I use um, those AAEV phrases, um, if I am being understood to be a celebrant or a appropriator. That's an interesting 
think about. So then the question is, and actually, I want to just back up real quick before I ask this question. I think that Renee, it's important to say that our demographic for our viewers is anywhere from 35 to 45. So you're going to have to educate people on what and means. I know what it is, but some of our view, and that's only because of fucking TikTok, but some of our viewers <laughs> and listeners may not know what that means. Can you tell us what stan culture is? Oh, stan culture. Mm -hmm. so, Just a brief okay. explanation, and then I want to get um, to the question about Eric. Stan culture. Um, okay, it goes back to Eminem, the rapper. There's a yes. song called Stan, and okay. Stan, Stan was like a super fan of yes. Eminem's, and he to the point where Stan would stalk him, and then it became like life threatening. And so now it's like when you are more than just a fan to something or an artist um, or an entity or whatever, then you are considered a stan and not a fan. Yes. And Stan was a sociopath, just so we're all clear. If you know that Eminem yeah. Stan was a sociopath, yeah. he drove him and his girlfriend off a bridge. It was very controversial um, in the early 2000s, and it's one of my favorite albums of all time, just saying. Anywho, thank you, Renee. <laughs> Uh, Eric, you look perplexed. Well, I never connected it with Eminem, I guess. I thought it was just a 2010s phrase for stalker and fan. I didn't know it It linked back to Eminem. So that's interesting. Mm -hmm. You learn something every day, you guys. Yeah. Here's the question I want to ask about what Eric just said, which I think is fantastic that you kind of were like, I think I do that sometimes. And then the question is, what do you do when that happens? What do you do when a friend in your group says like, okay, polka dots, and then, you know, you're like, oh, how do you determine what the appropriate thing is to say? How do you determine what someone's intent is? And how do you engage? Nick, I'm gonna start with you. That's a real tricky one, right? Cause it's all about context. I think, you know, there's, um, I'll put it this way, right? Um, the, going back to this idea of like societal power, you know what I mean? And uh, this notion of cultural theft versus cultural sharing. And I think for marginalized groups, right, those that kind of find themselves at the bottom of the well, so to speak, right, you do see that kind of cultural sharing back and forth, right? And so, uh, of course, you know, uh, nothing to take away from um, Black LGBTQ plus uh, community members, right? But just looking at, you know, Black cultural traditions and uh, cultural traditions of the LGBTQ plus community, right? And the, the back and forth of different, um, you know, forms of, of, of lingo, um, forms of, of music, right? If you wanna look at like disco, if you wanna look at like things like house music, right? That uh, those that sort of, who have been kind of marginalized in, in society, right? You see this kind of cultural sharing back and forth. Um, and where things get tricky, right, is that you run into some, into some black folks that have, right, straight privilege. You run into some LGBT folks who have white privilege, right? And so that's, those are kind of the weird gray areas where you kind of have to, right, play it by ear. Um, but I think that, you know, the kind of cultural sharing that we sort of see happen on, on, on the ground floor, so to speak, I think is really beautiful. I mean, for me, you know, I, I, I was absolutely, like, dumbstruck when I went to Chicago and saw black people dancing to house music for the first time in my life, like, you know, growing <laughs> up in California, I thought that was a Mexican Filipino thing. Right. But actually, yeah. you know, and then to learn that, you know, the black community in Chicago, they created house music. Right. And that, you know, that type, those type of revelations for me were, were mind blowing. Right. But the, you know, um, I think, you know, as a kid, right. When you're 14, 15 and, and, you know, you like the sound of the music, right. 
maybe it doesn't matter to you at that point, but as you kind of age and grow into an adult and have some kind of responsibility in society, right? You mm-hmm. do kind of learn to, to know better. What about you, Renee? How do you correct those things when you see them and how do you know how to appropriately engage? Well, um, I don't necessarily ever need to correct them because <laughs> I don't hang around with people who use anything inappropriately. But I will say um, what I've seen on social media when I just like watch maybe videos from influencers, um, it kind of bothers me only when I'm looking at, like, let's say, an influencer who's in the LGBTQ plus community who's white and they're using AAVE in the correct way, but they're now using it with a black scent. So they're sounding like they're black or trying to sound black, whatever that means. And then they're like doing like the neck rolls and the hand waving and the mm-mm child and like all that kind of stuff. And it's like, okay, you just turned into like somebody's black grandma from the deep South. Like, <laughs> and you're like a 21 year old white boy. So it's that's when I have an issue with it but I have I usually I don't have a problem when like like Nick was saying about the the cultural sharing yeah and then um you know it's really interesting because we talk about this a lot like how to correct behaviors as you see them and I think that you know we all talk about intent we talk about an intent a lot you know what I mean like I'm not gonna be for me personally I'm not offended by the gay men, for instance, in my life that speak in that tone and say those things. Why? Because they're around a bunch of black women all the time. So sometimes some of that shit sinks in and sometimes, and they know who I am and I know who they are and that's okay. Do you know what I mean? Like, and that's okay. And I learn a lot from them and they learn a lot from me. Um, so that intent to me is super, super important, but like, it feels different when it's coming from somebody who's random, who's in a group of, you know, white people. And am I going to correct a stranger? No. Am I going to correct someone who's offended me, who's a part of my circle? Yes, because we all owe each other that, right? Like you're a part of my circle. I say something stupid. You knock me upside the head. I'm not, you know what I mean? That's, that's how it is. Um, you know, we talk a little bit about that in our first episode that we ever did on microaggressions. It's like, how do you correct those microaggressions? You know, my favorite one is, you know, you talk like a white girl, but I'm black, so I must talk like a black girl. You know what I mean? So it's just, it's kind of that, you know, you can correct people and you can say that that offends you, or you can educate people on where that language is coming from, or where that style is coming from, or where that music originated from, which is my favorite. Music is probably my favorite rabbit hole to go down because people don't understand how far back the borrowing goes and how far back you know you can dig and find those inspirations or those or if you're elvis blatant theft you know what i mean like and you know it just it goes on and goes on and goes on and goes on so we talked a little bit about this we talked about social media a little bit i want to know from renee how you feel that social media has played a bigger role. Like we talked about stand culture, but we haven't talked about like how it's grown over the years and have you seen that get worse and people's access, that quick access to various cultures? 
yeah, so being that there is such quick access to everything, um, it's like social media kind of gives people um, audacity. <laughs> and because there's this screen, there's this thing in between me and you. And it's like, if you're never going to come in contact with me, then I can come on here and say and do whatever I want to. And some people feel that way. And so I feel like a lot of times that social media, but the internet also gives you access to information. And there is a huge group of people who will come across these people who are using things inappropriately and will actually educate them. That's the thing I love mm -hmm. to do like when I'm on Twitter is actually educating them instead of like just berating them and saying, you shouldn't be saying that and blah, blah, blah. It's like, okay, it's kind of like a child when they're about to put their hand on the stove and you say, that's hot. They don't know what hot means until they actually touch it. So it's kind of like you have to help them learn why it's wrong, why it's inappropriate. And so I feel like social media is good in that way. And so it's kind of this weird balance of uh, social media being used for good. And it's like, I can't say that it's gotten worse or gotten better because it's like where there, where there is bad, there's always a person who's doing good to come behind it and fix it and clean it up. I've seen that a lot. Um, Nick, any thoughts? Um, I think, you know, with, with social media and the influence of, I mean, you know, no pun intended, the influence of social media, I think one thing to really consider is that um, for sure the avenues of communication and, and in terms of seeing uh, what's going on out there in the world, right, has uh, greatly, greatly not only widened, but also quickened the pace uh, by which we can receive information, right? And so, um, you know, one of uh, my, not necessarily coworkers, but one of my, uh, um, I don't even know what to call her, um, someone who, who is also in my line of business as a professor, right, just got outed for being, you know, a, a, a white woman from Kansas City trying to pass herself off as a, a, a black Puerto Rican from, uh, from uh, the Bronx, right? Uh, her name was- uh, Oh my God, I'm <laughs> like, the tea, give me the tea. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, been, it's been on social media for the last, you know, uh, three or four weeks. Uh, her name's Jessica Krug. Uh, was telling people to call herself Jessica Cruz, saying that they misspelled her name at some point. Uh, you know, white Jewish woman from Kansas City who uh, decided to uh, one day be an expert in uh, African-American studies and uh, pass herself off as Puerto Rican. I am in shock. I'm not in shock because hashtag Rachel Dolans, but like I'm <laughs> in shock. Um, and I just want to say to like our viewers, you guys, we're in a Zoom and that's the only way you can re-record and we are all looking at each other because we're trying to engage in conversation. And I really wish that you could all see the sheer fucking shock on everyone's face when Nick shared that with us. So thank you for some really good tea and continue. No worries. She's not the only one. They, you know, a couple other folks were, uh, were recently uh, outed as well. And, you know, the, the issue isn't necessarily that it's a white woman that, you know, has a, has a doctorate in, in, uh, in black studies, right? You know, the issue is that she felt like she had to pass herself off as, uh, as, as a woman of color, right? To be able to, 
be an educator in, in, in sort of our field, right? And, and that's not the games that, you know, and on our, our end as folks who do yeah. this type of education, we don't care what you look like. We don't care where you're from. If you're interested in the content and you feel like, you know, you want to dedicate your career to teaching that, that's fine. You don't have to, you know, put on a mask and put on airs and put on a fake uh, Rosie Perez accent and try to fool everybody, right? For me, the, the real issue, for one, is that, you know, this, this individual probably has, you know, something she needs to work out for herself, but the real issue is that she was able to uh, gain access and receive um, benefits and uh, that other folks, right, who uh, are genuinely from those communities uh, were not extended invitation towards, right? So we're talking about uh, fellowships. We're talking about publishing opportunities. Mm. That um, because, you know, she uh, portrayed herself in in certain ways and and knew um, given, you know, her own background, sort of the ins and outs of some of these uh, worlds in which we we have to navigate through, they're often hostile to us, right? That she was able to navigate those in in ways in which those who are uh, first generation, uh, those of you, those of them, uh, those, you know, of uh, Puerto Rican background, um, even, you know, uh, New York Rican background, right, uh, were not extended the same type of, of, of hand up, right, or opportunity. And so in, in this case, right, you have uh, sort of, you know, the, the epitome of someone who is, you know, a cultural vulture, right? you know, quite literally a cultural vulture, right? And so, you know, I think as we discuss these different, um, you know, ways in which we sort of see cultural appropriation on, on social media, right? Yeah, of course, you know, we can get into the shades of gray and, and those are important to unpack. But also when we see these gross injustices, right, I think it, it, it does uh, make it incumbent upon a lot of us to just really, you know, call that out. Eric, do you have any thoughts on this? What I really want to know is like, at what point in her life did she turn the corner? And she's like, I'm just gonna go full force. I'm no longer white. You know, like, I, what, what was the corner that she, that, that, that she took that she could go back from, you know? That, this is a really fascinating thing. I think um, uh, this, this professor, I think um, Rachel um, Bilazar, I think all of those are really interesting studies. Um, when do you go too far? That's so fascinating to me. Right. And I, I think, you know, there's also, uh, especially for a lot of us, you know, uh, I don't know, you know, a lot of times for those of us who are concerned with these type of conversations, right, concerned about these issues, we get labeled sort of the, the tolerant, right, the tolerant uh, side or the, you know, the, 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 the liberal side, right, the tolerant left, if they, sometimes they say, right. And I think sometimes, you know, um, sometimes that label is true, right. I think sometimes, you know, the, the um, I want to I don't want to call it politeness, but the uh, sort of um, benefit of a doubt sometimes that's extended, right? Folks who do have um, maybe malicious intent are able to take advantage of that, whether it's you know this uh, Jessica Krug or if it's Rachel DeLiesel, right? That the fact that they were able to extend this you know this appropriative charade for so long, right? Um, that says something about something. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to kind of dive into this really quickly, and I, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but um, in the recent um, actions of um, our good buddy Ice Cube, 
Um, I think it's a, it's a great time to ask, uh, can you exploit your own culture? Um, and I, I, I know we all have a lot of opinions about it and I just want to, I think that you can, um, but I want to hear more and I want to get to each of you, but I'm going to start with Nick. Excited. All right. So <laughs> when the NWA movie came out, people asked me, hey, yo, did you see the NWA movie? I said, I don't need to see this NWA movie. I already saw the NWA movie and it was called CB4. <laughs> the only real gangster in NWA was Easy E. Easy E was the only one who ran the streets, was selling drugs, and was a part of an actual street gang. All the other members of, of NWA. Um, you know, Ice Cube taking um, classes at the uh, the the uh, the design school, right? Um, Dre, you know, everyone knows about Dre, um, and so you know that these individuals, these artists, right? And there's nothing taken away from their artistry, right? Nothing taken away from their artistry. Nothing taken away from their skill. Dre, you know, is a brilliant producer. Ice Cube, amazing performer, right? Brilliant delivery, right? Um, nothing to take away from any of them as artists, right? But really, you know, as as gangster rappers, right? As folks who um, made a living off of describing a lifestyle that devastated, uh, to be honest, right? The lives of of countless in, in South LA, right? Really, only one who actually lived that lifestyle was was easy, you know. And so, um, for me, you know, the the notion of being able to exploit your own culture, yeah, of course. But I think also, you know, there again, there, there's there's shades of gray there too, right? And so, um, I think as we uh, think about sort of our artists, right, whether they're visual artists, whether they're performing artists, right, they gotta, you know, they uh, make their money from their craft, right, to be able to support and sustain themselves. And so, if you have, right, for example, Native American uh, artists, right, that sell um, sort of, you know, stereotypical kind of like, you know, Indian blankets, so to speak, right, or little trinkets or little things of jewelry, right? Who's, who am I to say that, hey, you know, white person don't buy that, right? Don't wear that jewelry because that's going to, that's going to, right, pay somebody's uh, rent for that month, right? So, you know, by no means am I going to say that, that that's not okay, right? Mm -hmm. But again, right, thinking about, uh, you know, uh, NWA and, 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 you know, maybe thinking about some other folks who maybe, right, um, took advantage of, of a moment, right, to, to take advantage of their culture and to play up certain stereotypes that may exist, right, um, I think, you know, that needs to be called into question sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Eric, what about you? As a white man, I have no culture to exploit. <laughs> Okay, uh, Renee. <laughs> no, no, I love this panel. I love this panel. I do not say another word. We're moving on. I think that was a brilliant response. Renee, you're up. <laughs> that, yeah, that was gold. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, I do believe you can. Um, just going back to what Nick said, there are there are artists today who do the same exact thing. Um, they get all these tattoos and goals, and they talk about the street life and the shoot 'em up, bang bang, whatever. And they like live in the suburbs with their parents, and <laughs> they've never probably seen a gun, a real gun, in their lives. And 
that's uh I I really that's the thing that I can't stand and then like being in Atlanta and knowing where a lot of these Atlanta rappers actually come from and the neighborhood they actually grew up in and actually being close to people who grew up with them and then they can go back and say yeah I used to go to high school with such and such I'm not gonna call anyone out huh but I might want to work with them one day but <laughs> but yeah like I used to go to school with such and such and we lived on this street in this neighborhood and it's like oh so you you were never in the gangs oh so you never you never did that you never did this and <laughs> that's really frustrating um and I believe one of the number one people who exploits their culture is Drake <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want to talk about this. He exploits his culture and every he, he exploits his culture and everyone else's culture and that. Okay, get into that. I want to. I actually want to get into that because I want to know how. Okay. And I, I really do want to understand this because I people hit on Drake all the time, and you know what? I'm not here for it. So tell me what you mean by that. And then I want to ask a few questions specifically about urban culture in other countries and the American view of that. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like that is very important. So tell me what you have to say, and then and then I will be quick to rebut. Okay, I'm gonna try to I'm try to make this quick too. Okay, so Drake, he kind of well, he already kind of has like this identity crisis going on. He's Jewish, he's white, he's black, and mm -hmm. he wants to be accepted in the black community and be respected as a black man and mm -hmm. so he goes through great lengths to to find that respect in ways um he has songs where he's talking about i'll have somebody come see about you like different stuff where it's like he kind of alludes to like this kind of tough guy thing that you see in hip-hop culture a lot and it's like Drake you came from Degrassi you're an actor who like like that's the thing is like Drake is an actor and he's very good like he is a phenomenal mm -hmm. actor and so it translates well, he's an entertainer music. yeah it, yes and it translates in his music and sometimes I feel like he can kind of step out out of the line of who he actually is and try to um put on this facade to make himself seem more black than he is mm -hmm. and um then there is the he's a culture vulture when it comes to other cultures where uh latina la, uh latinos um uh jamaican so like uh caribbean all that like the accent changes that have happened in the past couple of years have been wild to me and I'm just like, hey, Drake, just be you. Find out what that yeah. is. But I think yeah. he's probably afraid that being him is not going to give him the respect that he seeks so much. Yeah, I think that I think that there's some truth to that. And I think that, you know, Drake being who he is and kind of being from Canada, and he, I would assume that he grew up in some kind of suburb and then grew up in the hood and he was a young actor on Degrassi. That's one thing I think. But to a lot of people use his Canadianness like against him, which I think is interesting because that implies that there's a deep urban culture in other countries. So there is deep urban culture in Toronto. It just looks different than ours. 
um, and the music looks different than ours. There is deep urban culture in England and in London in particular, and that's something that my last trip, I there were I went to places that I had never seen in London before, and was like, oh god damn, you know what I mean? So there is deep urban culture, and I I want to be careful when we talk about folks who are not from the states that we're not implying that we don't imply that there's no urban culture in other places. Like American urban culture is, it's not limited. Like there are, there's a lot of that and they all take and pull from each other, which mm -hmm. also a great thing. Also don't come for Drake, please, on my show. I mean, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but can you be a black, can an, an African Canadian, I, I don't know what their- You can, yes. And then, okay, okay, Colonialism, okay, yes, yeah. But can you be <laughs> a, a black Canadian in the suburbs of Toronto, going on to Grassy Junior High, okay? Mm -hmm. So a very um, vanilla- Sure. Youth, and suddenly yeah. become a, a hip hop stripper, um, thud, uh, the whole like rapper thing that yeah. he is. But maybe that's what he thought was great and cool and that's who he wanted to be and we should all be kind of okay with that. Is he uh, a question uh, on the end? Uh, <laughs> he's like, tag he's, me in, tag me in. He, he's sexy as hell and he is great and I enjoy his music and I enjoy like his persona and I, I enjoy all of it. But I, I, I think he appropriated Black American culture. I'm gonna jump in for a quick second, right? And I, I want to bring back in the the the, the privilege question, right? Um, mm -hmm. Drake, right? Uh, as a performer, right? That is black. Mm -hmm. Is not afforded the privilege to ha take on these personas that will change throughout his career, right? We look to black artists to have this sort of authentic black self and don't extend them the privilege to be a persona. We want Lil Wayne to be, you know, we, we want, you know, uh, you know, Mr. Carter to be, you know, let me, let me start with Jay-Z. We want Sean Carter to be Jay-Z, right? We, we want, you know, we want um, uh, Tupac Shakur to be Tupac with the, two, with the, with the letter two, right? We, we, we want th these black performers to be this imagined version of authentic blackness, right? Which is very stereotypical in, in many ways, right? Uh, but we don't afford them the uh, ability to take on these personas that may change and shift throughout their career, right? So, you know, we've talked about Madonna, we've talked about Gwen Stefani, look at their sort of, you know, shifting identities uh, depending on what album is out, right? But they're still, right, seen as, oh, okay, so that's the performer, now this is their this is their that phase right this is the sex book madonna this is the dick tracy era madonna this is so on and so forth right um drake has to be drake for his entire career right ice cube has to be sort of you know uh, jerry curl you know ice cube for for for, for, for perpetuity right um and, and that has to do also with you know the market right um if you want to sell yourself as an artist and you're, you know, entering the realm of hip hop, hip hop, right? There are certain expectations on how you should comport yourself, right? Um, if you want to uh, be successful in that career and not just be seen as a one-off, like, you know, Lil Nas X, for, for example, right? Mm -hmm. 
have we afforded that that luxury to Beyonce? We we allowed her to move from a um, girl group pop music, kind of disposable pop music, and we yeah. allowed her to become a a multifaceted artist who, with every album, does change her approach to music. It changes that, her style. Mm -hmm. That is because that has that model has been done before, though. That model was done with the Supremes and Diana Ross. That whole model has already happened. So that rules of the road for that were already written, right? And then when you look at the reinvention process, that's just taking a page out of Madonna's book. It looks, but it is taking a page out of Madonna's book a thousand percent. Every album was a different look. It was a different vibe. It was a different Madonna. Um, and then breaking up the group and moving one girl. That, I mean, that we all saw, we saw, we all knew who the Supremes are. We all saw Dream Girls. And we all rocked a fucking Destiny's Child album and knew who was Diana. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think like it's easier when the path has been paved for you already. Um, but you know, again, I think Drake is fine, you guys, and everybody should just leave him alone because he's Drake from Toronto for the people. What, Renee? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I want to say something about Drake and Beyonce. Okay, so this kind of going back to Beyonce real quick. Um, she actually got back a little backlash from certain parts of her her Beehive, where they kind of missed who she was when she was in Destiny's Child because she wore the protective style. She wore her hair in afro. She they they said they said that she they she felt more black to them when she was in Destiny's Child. And when she became a solo artist, she kind of conformed to what the societal standards were for um, a popular artist. And then, as you saw, the, over the past couple of years, she kind of went back into her blackness, per se. And it's like, it was almost like she went from like R&B, hip hop, to pop, back to R&B, and then hip-hop and then so it's like um there was like this weird shift mind you i love all her albums um and i have no problem with the artistic changes um but it, i i think it's like who she portrayed um portrayed herself to be in the public eye it was almost mm. like she was whitewashed for a second and then she got back to her roots i am fascinated by that train of thought because I never had that train of thought. And then the question is, from an entertainment perspective, are those calculated moves? Often, we as people of color straighten our hair, we put all kinds of shit in it to be <laughs> for the outside, what I call the outside world without calling anybody out, right? So is that a calculated move? And was that a determining factor to her, her success? Tamla and I were literally just sitting around the fire the other night watching the Crazy in Love video. And we were like, I knew, I told her, I said, I knew in that moment, there's that moment where she's dancing in the alley and she takes her thumb and she licks her thumb. And I was with a white boys who were like, God damn. And I was like, it's over. It's over for everyone who's not brown. This is my game now. I was like, yes, I'm taking all the white boys. But that was like a cultural fucking shift. 
and everybody knows what I'm talking about, right? It's like, you remember that moment when you saw that? And I never, I, I was like, what? Like, they were all just like, what just happened to my body? You know, so I think some of that is on purpose. And I think that then, but again, Coachella, Baychella, I'm not even going to call it, Baychella is another great example of, I'm going to take, what is, what is Coachella, Eric? 80,000, 90,000 people? Oh, it's huge, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's massive. 80, 90,000 people. It's about as big as Bonnaroo. It's not bigger. Um, and she educated a bunch of fucking people who were predominantly white on what it means to be a part of HBC culture. Yes. Go ahead. But, but she didn't experience HBCU culture. But growing up in the South as a yes. person, so she, very much a part of your culture, whether you attend or not, at least to the for best. Sure. Even as, and that's to the best of my knowledge. I can't speak for it directly, but the folks that I know, it's like you still go to the games, you still yes. participate in that. Growing culture. up in the South, um, yeah. you know, when I hear the dance line say, all right, girls, let's do it in formation, mm -hmm. I knew what the reference was, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, Yes. She could not have done formation in all of its blackness earlier in her career. You know, mm -hmm. I think that she had to build um, whatever credibility or fan or whatever it is, um, mm -hmm. uh, Son of Albums, in order to lean into that black side of her. Um, and I, I thought it was brilliant. And I, and I knew the reference from living in the South. It was, it was mm -hmm. awesome. When it comes to Coachella, I think it was a brilliant move. I wish, and I, even though it's, it's not authentic to her experience, it is the, probably the only um, foray that most people will have into the HBCU culture. So that was mm -hmm. great. Yeah, but it, I think you, you may... So on that note, and then I'm going to move on. Yeah. Yep. Circles right back to Nick's point earlier is she had to gain her stripes mm -hmm. to be able to speak her truth or share her experience or send a message or educate about her culture. She was not afforded that privilege from the jump. And I think that's where, that's why we all have these conversations, right? Um, this is, I love, thank you guys for sharing about that. This has been a really good section of the conversation. I wanna to touch on one more thing before we wrap up, and that is food. Um, as, as somebody who cooks for peace and cooks to de-stress, I have been on vacation for a couple of days from work and I have been cooking, 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 like there's an army of people here, it's just three of us. Um, and there's a show that I used to watch on Netflix called Ugly Delicious. And it was, a, it's David Chang's show on Ugly Del, uh, called Ugly Delicious on Netflix. And there's something that always sticks with me from that show. And he talks about how his mom would cook and he grew up in Virginia and, you know, she would make all of these traditional recipes and he would get teased in school for what he brought to school at lunch. And he would get picked on when his friends came over. And now it's a multi-million dollar industry that, um, that type of food, right? Asian type of food is this fusion and all this shit. And he's managed to make a living off of it, but he still feels a little bit of resentment 
because he had to go through that as a kid. Um, I know for me in particular, um, there's an episode about fried chicken. Um, and there's a bunch of guys, some white dudes in Nashville making hot chicken. Um, and, uh, they talk about it and they kind of go into it, but they sit down with like the original, you know, the original creator of this hot chicken and they sit with her and they, 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 they amplify her. And so I, I wonder what you guys think about that in and around food and, um, if you have had any of those thoughts as far as how cultural appropriation speaks to our daily diet, Nick. Yeah, for me, um, you know, I, I actually um, identify a lot with with David Chang in part because uh, growing up, I ate a lot of Korean food. Uh, my grandmother's Korean, and so um, for me, you know, I have very very uh, permissive. Uh, notions around uh, cultural mixing when it comes to cuisine, you know, in part that's just, just how I was raised. And so for me, you know, the the question really comes down to that notion of societal privilege, right? And really, there's not anyone that you can point the finger at. It's not you can point it to one perpetrator and say, hey, you know, you're stealing this culture or that culture, right? It's much more thinking about, you know, in in my example, you know, taking things like uh, kimchi to to lunch in high school, right? And uh, if folks aren't familiar with kimchi, it's 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 pungent. It's a pungent. Delicious. Uh, it's delicious, but it's pungent, right? And getting you know getting weird looks from across the table, like, well, you know, put that. What is that? Put that away, you know. And now you know it's 2020. Everyone knows what kimchi is, right? Everyone knows what you know. Um, uh, the co everyone knows how to identify the kogi truck, right? If it's coming down your your block, right? Uh, but that's how it was. That's not how it was for me growing up. And so for me, it's one of those sort of like Lance Moore said, isn't, I, isn't it ironic type of, type of moments? Uh, but it's not something that I feel that I can really hold anyone accountable for or, or in that way, I don't get too upset about it, right? But it's one of those like head shaking things where I'm like, wow, man, if I knew, if I knew uh, 15, 20 years ago, how cool this would be then that I know now, I would have, you know, maybe we uh, would have brought it more to school. I don't know. Yeah, Renee? So I never, I never really like think about it when it comes to food, but now that you bring it up, <laughs> I, um, maybe, uh, it's in my subconscious. I, if I go get Mexican, I refuse to go to any chain restaurant unless the restaurants are owned by actual Mexican people and the, the cooks are Mexican and the bar keeps are Mexican because I want authentic Mexican food. Um, if I go get Asian cuisine and there are Mexicans working in the kitchen, I don't want it anymore <laughs> because there, it's not um, it's not actual uh, Asians cooking what I, I want to feel authentic. Um, and of course, you know, there's like American style Chinese, but there's still Chinese people cooking the food. And um, I do prefer to go to like an authentic Chinese restaurant when I want Chinese. And so, yeah, like I, I definitely refuse to go to the people who, um, who profit off of um, food from cultures that don't belong to them. And I, I kind of, I don't, I don't like it. That's the only way I can, I can put that. It's like, yeah. I, I don't like it. That's fair. Um, Eric, you and I cook a lot. I see you cook a lot. Um, do you... Or is there anything in particular that you are inspired by or do you kind of feel like um, 
sharing is caring when it comes to food. Cause like, I know I'm in the sense of like my, when I co I'm cooking with all of my heart, like I I'm feeding, if I feed you, I love you. Um, and so it, in one day it might be Asian food and one day it might be Italian food or it might be soul food. What do you, how do you feel about that? So when a home cook prepares a recipe and they are following um, a, a traditional style um, of a um, entree. Um, I am okay with that. I'm okay with, it, with a home chef doing that, you know, pulling from different cultures. You know, we, we live in a global economy that way. What I do not support is a Allison Roman um, who um, will put a, a ethnic spin on a dish and call it her own. Um, I, I think that one of the big examples is uh, her chickpea stew, which went viral, and it's it's it became just known as the stew, the hashtag, the whole thing, and it was uh, chickpeas and turmeric and, and coconut milk. It had all the makings of a curry, but we didn't call it a curry, you know. And she sold Cooper Decker cookbook, and she was on all the blogs, and she made a bunch of money, uh, but she never gave the um, gave the appreciation to the culture that inspired that dish. Mm. Now, there is nothing, um, you know, unique necessarily about, you know, turmeric and coconut milk and chickpeas and, you know, anyone to put those together. But if you don't um, give the appreciation to the culture that came from it, I think that's a problem. Um, we could go on and on about the team at, uh, and all of their um, white faces on camera cooking ethnic food or not at all. Um, I think food is very political uh, and uh, I think people feel like they, they did a pass because we all eat everywhere. Um, but that's a tricky one. And, and I, I think that, I think that mm -hmm. will be the new hairstyle. I think that will be the new conversation I agree. we'll be having. Yeah, I agree. All right, you guys, we have come to the end of the road. Um, one thing that we do on every show where we have a panel is we ask um, one question. Eric has been on our panel before and he's answered this question, so we are gonna spare him today. Um, but Renee and Nick are new. So we always ask our panelists, what is your favorite thing about having an open heart? And the reason that we ask this question is because that's what this is all about. It's about people coming together from different communities, some old friends, some new friends, um, sharing their experiences and helping those who listen to be more open. So I'm going to start with Renee. So my favorite thing about having an open heart is giving um, of myself, I can receive it. I'm not saying that I give to receive, but usually when you do, then people open up their hearts as well. And I find that I'm an extremely open person already, but then I'm also an extremely caring person. And when people see those qualities about me, then if they weren't, then they become that, at least to me. And so I appreciate that. Awesome. Nick? For me, having an open heart and the best thing about sort of, you know, living my life and, and trying to really strive to open my heart to the experiences of others is really being able to 
have that empathy for other folks, right? And give them the benefit of the doubt. I think, you know, um, whatever folks are pre presenting to, to us on the surface, right, really masks a whole slew of things that they're going through on their, on their daily grind. And so for me to remind myself to, right, always give folks the benefit of, of the doubt through having an open heart is the best way to go about my day. Awesome. Um, so I just want to thank you guys so much. You guys have been funny and insightful and this has been really, really great. Um, and everybody just have a good night. Talk soon. Cheers.